This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great show for you today on episode number 531. We've got Dr. David Corey. We're going to talk a little bit about fungi and health and disease and a series of papers that his group has put together and really looking forward to a, a great discussion to add to our archives on, on uh, medical discussion of fungi. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everybody. Congratulations to Thomas Barnes III, Greenville, South Carolina, who was first to identify the running thread among management consultant W. Edwards Deming, band leader Glenn Miller, astronaut Scott Carpenter, and actor Robert Redford, who were all alumni of the University of Colorado in Boulder. The IEQ Radio Trivia question for today, Friday, January 25, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the two primary pathogenic fungal infection risks found in bird and bat droppings. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, this week's guest is a professor of pathology and immunology and medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine, the Michael E. DeBakey, Virginia, or VA Medical Center. And uh, Dr. Uh, David Corey is a pulmonologist by clinical background. He still practices, mostly focusing on allergic, allergic airway diseases such as asthma and sinusitis. Uh, most of the time, he's an immunologist, and his research focuses into the mechanisms underlying inflammatory lung and other diseases, including smoking-related emphysema, asthma, and sinusitis. And his group has put together a bunch of excellent papers on allergic inflammation, uh, largely through the release of, of protease, and uh, also some, some more recent papers on Canada and how it crosses the blood-brain barrier. But let's uh, get into that with the doctor. Hello, Dr. Corey. Do we have you on the line? Hey, good morning, Joe. How's, how's it going? Great, thank you. It's great to have you. I, I ran across your most recent paper, I guess it would be on Science Digest, and I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. And then when, when I got to corresponding with you, I realized you had done some things that um, you know, I wasn't really familiar with, and, and I don't think our listeners are. We've had a, a broad range of, of medical doctors over the years, but I don't think we've ever had anyone with, with quite the take on this issue as you 
Um, first, why don't we tell listeners a little bit about how you how you got interested in this whole topic of, of the fungi and and uh, issues with respect to you know fungal infections and uh, how they affected the pulmonary system, etc. Sure. Let me let me walk you through that. Uh, that that's about that's about twenty five years of evolution. Uh, so so as you as you pointed out, I'm a lung specialist uh, on my on the clinical side, and I, and I'm an an immunologist on on this on the science side. So you know, with trying to put those two together, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the, with a research career, which I was trying to get off the ground, you know, about about a quarter century ago. Uh, you know, I decided that I wanted to study asthma. So at, at the time, uh, 25 years ago, that's re- it was really a mysterious disease. We knew that it was inflammatory. Um, it had the, all these these specific uh, molecules like immunoglobulin E or IgE, and there's certain infection-fighting blood cells, some, some called an eosinophil. Uh, they're very strongly linked to asthma. We, so we knew it was inflammatory, but that's, that's about all we knew. Um, couple of decades ago, there was really no understanding of what was the fundamental underlying cause of that disease. As a, as a clinician, uh, you know, even as an expert who's supposed to know more than anybody about asthma, you know, I, I, I would lose in my clinic uh, when I was training, I would lose two or three people a year. They would, they would die with this disease, with me supposedly being the expert, you know, trying to manage them. Very, very um, humbling, very humiliating, very depressing situation to be in. So one of the things that motivated me to go into asthma research is really try to understand the disease better so we can have better outcomes uh, with our patients. Hmm. So one thing led to another. So let, let me get, so let me just point out, you know, when it, when it comes to um, diseases like asthma, you know, um, it's, it's generally believed that there must be something coming from the environment that you're inhaling that has to produce that inflammation that leads to that disease. Um, and that, and that was so, so in the back of my mind was trying to understand what is that environmental connection to the, uh, to the disease we're all trying to manage a little bit better here. So, um, one of the, our first discoveries was that, uh, proteases, um, are a big part of what, uh, causes, uh, or what can potentially cause asthma. Um, and that was, that inspiration came from work that came out in the 1960s, some epidemiologists were looking into the causes of asthma coming out of detergent factories that were in the UK, United Kingdom originally, uh, and it turned, they traced it all to the proteases that they were then adding to those laundry detergents. The proteases are added, these are coming from bacteria, by the way, but they're added to the detergents to make them work better. Let's face it, a lot of the stains on our clothes, you know, they're due to proteins binding to the cotton or whatever. So somebody, some bright person in the, in the, in the, um, Detergent industry figured out that by adding proteases, you can make your product work a whole lot better. The problem is that the folks that were handling that protease came down with an awful lot of asthma. It's a really bad form of asthma. And that, to this day, that actually remains a problem in the industry with it continues to add these proteases because they make their products work so well. So there was no understanding, though, as why. Why would proteases, you know, cause asthma? So one of the things that we, we, we did to, to try to understand a little better, we actually went into kids' houses that have asthma here in the Houston area. We vacuumed their car. We went to 220 uh, houses, believe it or not, with vacuum cleaners and pulled out that dust. And we were looking for proteases, and we found them. And then, and then and they're just about in, everybody, in everybody's house. But the question is, well, who's making the proteases? So it turns out, wherever we can identify those proteases, it, it turns out that it's fungi. It's hmm. always fungi. So that got us thinking, well, 
Okay, well, wait a second. Uh, was there enough protease here in, in those carpets? Uh, you know, even if the kid is on his hands and knees going under mom and dad's bed sniffing dust bunnies all day long, is he going to get enough protease to actually cause that asthma based on what we know about industrial exposures in, in these detergent factories, right? At least that mm-hmm. asthma. So it turns out there's nowhere near enough, not even by m- multiple orders of magnitude, is there enough protease there to actually be a direct cause of that asthma? Um, so a better way of thinking about this is it's not the protease directly that's doing that, but maybe it's the organism, the fungus, that that's what you're inhaling and getting in your airway uh, and setting up shop and producing the protease as it's growing in your airway, right? And and so that's what we've been working on since uh, over the past 10 to 15 years, and that has held up actually extraordinarily well. So we published uh, in, the, in the first paper that you mentioned, that airway surface mycosis paper, what we did was we worked with our uh, colleagues at the ear, nose, and throat um, department, uh, otolaryngology uh, service um, at the University of Texas, right across the street from where I am at Baylor. Uh, and so we, the, what, the, what the surgeons did was when folks came in with really bad sinusitis, which is very strongly linked to asthma, and in fact, about half of our patients had asthma at the same time as they had sinusitis. Hmm. As they're surgically opening those sinuses and then washing that infected cavity out, they're giving us that liquid. And then we, we uh, set up the, that culture to see what would grow. And, and, and in about, about 70, 75% of, our, of these patients, we got fungus, not bacteria, uh, but, but fungus is what, was what grew out in about 75%. Hmm. Um, and, and the other thing um, that we did, we had a nice control group. So we have folks coming in for surgery involving their sinuses, but they don't have sinusitis. They have perfectly normal sinuses, but they have brain tumors or they have other issues that require a surgical approach that goes through the sinuses. So that was a very nice control group. And if you wash that out and culture that, that, that reveals fungus at about 18%. So it's a big difference, 18% versus about 75%. Hmm. So that was very very strong evidence that, that what we're actually dealing with is an infection, but then we went beyond that. We showed that in the folks that have sinusitis uh, with or without asthma, if you look for an, uh, them having a specific uh, fungus directed, that is immune response against the fungus, uh, which you find that is, uh, you find that in about almost 95% of, 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 of those patients. But again, if you go back to the folks that are healthy uh, in terms of their sinus with no disease, then they, we, we cannot demonstrate any uh, fu- fungus-specific immune responses uh, at, at, at a T-cell level. Uh, so those two pieces of data together, uh, yeah, the, the vast majority of folks that have some sort of uh, allergic disease of their sinus or, or the lower airway, that is asthma, um, plus having a fungus-specific immune response is extremely strong evidence um, that that is uh, indeed um, a cause, not just an association, but actually a cause of, of their disease. And then the final part of this to really make this 100% convincing, at least in our minds, was we took the same exact fungi, we grew them in the laboratory, we took the spores and gave them to mice. And if you do that, then you, you replicate in very, very fine detail the major features of asthma, but actually, and this is not published, but we're actually, I just, <laughs> five minutes ago, I just was, just before we got started, I was talking to one of my scientists in my laboratory. We've actually now developed a sinusitis model in mice that re- replicates in very fine detail 
human sinusitis, uh, but using live fungus. So, so all these pieces put, put together make for a very strong case that, that in fact, that, that the fungus is actually not just an associate, it's actually causing the disease. Let me, let me go back and, and clarify a few things. First, the, the protease, that, as I understand, is that an enzyme then that's a, a part of... Um, this is exactly right. So enzymes, so, so proteases are just a type of enzyme. They, they just take proteins and just tear them apart. They just degrade them. So we, all organisms make proteases. Um, so we certainly have to make proteases in our, in, in, in our intestines to, as part of the, the process of digesting our food, right, to break it down so we can then absorb it in small enough pieces. And then we can build our own proteins by stitching those pieces back together again, the amino acids in particular. So we all make proteases. So what's the big deal? Why, why would why would that be such a factor that that would be important in in, in, in asthma? Um, so that, that that's a, that's a more difficult question to answer. But 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 we have demonstrated that in fact it is the protease that is essential here. So we've shown this several ways. So if you take um, if you take a single molecule of protease, in this case it's derived from fungus. By the way. Uh, a little bit of background here. So we, uh, we started out using fungal proteases. The reason why is not because we had any intuition that fungi were, were so important in asthma. It's just they're very, it's very easy and cheap to obtain these proteases. So it cost is a very important issue. The reason why they're very, they're very common is because fungal proteases are, are produced in huge industrial quantities. They're used in the food industry. So they're used to ferment and process soybeans to make, for example, soy sauce, right? Okay. Whenever you, drink, whenever you have your soy sauce to flavor your meal or, you know, dip your sushi in, just keep in mind that that's a protease product, and it's a fungal protease product, as a matter of fact. So it, it turns out that, and again, it's just like with the detergent factory workers, the, the guys that are in the factories working with that fungal protease are coming down with an awful lot of asthma. So it turns out, again, wherever, wherever any protease is, is used in industrial scales, it is the workers that are using and handling that protease that come down with asthma. Okay, anyway, so you, you can take any of these protease. The, the, the protease can come from the papaya fruit, something called papain, bromelain, which is something that's used industrially, but it comes from the pineapple, uh, and then these fungal proteins. It doesn't matter. Any of these, you can give them to mice as single molecules through the nose, just let them inhale it, and they will come down with a disease that's very strikingly reminiscent of asthma and sinusitis. Hmm. Okay, so, but then, okay, then back to fungus. So, We've also shown that, in fact, it is specifically the, the proteases that come out of the fungi that actually that do produce that disease. So I mentioned to you that we we induce asthma-like disease by giving the spores of, of fungus. Uh, in this case, the, the fungus is called Aspergillus. Aspergillus niger is a specific one that we use. Okay. So we, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to genetically engineer these fungi so that they, they stop producing fun, uh, proteases. They stop secreting them. So if you take oh. those fungi and you give them the mice um, and they and the ones that can't make the protease, then you can't get that asthma-like disease. The fungus will grow in the mouse airway just like wild type. It's just not an artifact of not being able to grow or anything like that. They grow just fine. In fact, they grow better than the, than the normal fungus that can make the protease. The protease-deficient fungi grow just fine or even better, uh, but they, you cannot get that asthma-like disease. You cannot get that allergic inflammation. You do get inflammation, but it's just not allergic. It's not asthma-like, if you will. Hmm. So there are a number of ways we've looked at this, and, and it's, it's quite clear that 
at least for the molds, things like aspergillus, in order for them to produce asthma-like disease, they have to make that protease. Hmm. And that's a common fungi we find in, in indoor environments, the aspergillus. Is absolutely. It's, it's absolutely everywhere. Right. Yeah, they're, they're the most common we look at with respect to, you know, water damaged buildings. They're very common. Uh, not so much niger, but, you know, we do find niger. And exactly. Now, let me ask you this, um, because we had a, a guest on, actually, we, we bring him on from time to time, Jeff May, and um, he he spoke about an enzyme, I believe it was called substylin. Is, is that the same? Subtilicin. Subtilicin? It's a subtilicin. Uh, that, that is... That is the protease that is made by a bacterium, Bacillus subtilis. That's where the name comes from, subtilicin from Bacillus subtilis. <laughs> Say that uh. 20 times. And in <laughs> fact, it is that protease, in fact, that is added to laundry detergents. And that's what's causing all the asthma in these factory workers in the UK. Gotcha. That's what he had, he had mentioned. And then we also he also mentioned that if you can't find anything else that could be causing these people's allergic reaction, you might want to look at the type of laundry detergent they're using. So that's exactly right. Exactly. Okay. Doc, Doc, I've got a question, if if sure. I may. Going through this uh, industrial use of the uh, you know the proteases and also the food uses of it. Uh, it, it seems that these products come in two different forms. It's possible to buy these in a powdered form and it's possible to buy them in a liquid form. And what my question is, does the problem occur with both forms or only with the, the powdered form, which would be the one most likely to be inhaled? Right. So, so the, in terms of the, of a link to human, uh, these industrially added proteases, in terms of their ability to potentially elicit human allergic disease, the main, the big concern is, uh, yeah, is the fine granular aerosolizable form, the, the inhale, this is the stuff that you can readily inhale. That's the problem. That's where the problem would be. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So, but let me, if I can, let me extend that just a little bit. One of the concerns is, um, in, is, uh, is in cooking. So if you're dealing with a food and you're, you're cooking that over high heat, and for example, uh, in your skillet that has uh, some oil on there in high heat, and as as is done with Chinese cooking in particular, right. and you're so if you have protease uh, or or anything that is else that is capable of inducing uh, allergic inflammation, in particular of the, of the lung, you know it's it's that smoke and and that, that fine very fine aerosol that's generated by high heat cooking. Theoretically, I, I wouldn't say this has been proved, but I, I would just point this out as a potential concern. That could be a highly, um, that could be a disease-inducing context in a person that has the right genetic disposition. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's important to be well-ventilated is what I guess is what I'm trying to say if you're cooking in, in this kind of context. So either the protease or maybe other things, proteins that are foreign that are in those proteins, that they're in those foods, uh, could be a concern in, in, in cooking under these conditions. What about MSG? MSG, uh, you know, it's a very small, uh, it, it's, it's actually a single amino acid. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a protease, uh, but it is linked to inflammatory reactions. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Um, and aerosolizing that is, 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 is definitely a concern due to its intrinsic ability to induce inflammation. Uh, so, yes, that, 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 that's also a concern. Totally so let, 
let me uh, go a little more into the sinusitis. I'm, I'm very intrigued by that because I, you know, I have my own issues with that. And a lot of our listeners are um, practitioners that go out and they, they investigate moldy buildings and water damaged buildings. They're exposed a lot to fungi, bacteria, that's microbial soup that we call it. And obviously a bunch of proteinase as well. Um, Tell us a little bit about what what sinusitis is and how often you would say it's caused by an infection as opposed to something else. Sure. Sinusitis is involves uh, an inflammatory process of your of your what are called your technically the technical terms your paranasal sinuses. Uh, just so if you can imagine your your nasal passage, you know, just your nose opening. So there are. There are four, uh, in most people, there are four different uh, sinuses that are effectively what they are. They're bubbles. Think of them as bubbles in your skull. Uh, they're just cavities in your skull. Uh, they're lined with the same kind of cell that's in your nasal passage. And these four sinuses, now, uh, I won't go, go through all the technical names, but one of them that's above your, your, your eyebrows called the frontal sinus is missing. In about, you know, maybe 10% of people, not everybody has frontal sinuses, but everybody else has the others. They all drain into that nasal passage, and, and, and they can become inflamed. They can get in, in, um, in, uh, active inflammations can set up in those sinuses. And we don't really understand the natural history of this terribly well. There's not been a lot of great studies in this area. But what evidence is, is, exists out there, and we're studying this intensively now, and we have not published all of our current findings, but what we are learning is that the natural history seems to be that once it starts, it uncommonly goes away. What seems to be more common is that once sinusitis starts, that is this inflammation of one or more of your sinuses, it, over time it slowly gets worse. By worse, what we mean is the lining of that sinus is normally so thin you can't see it. It becomes millimeters, and then in some people it gets up to centimeters thick. And the inflammation can fill up uh, the entire sinus in the worst of cases. Uh, and, that's, and that's accompanied by other changes in the nasal passage, including the growth of what's called a polyp. Polyps are, um, they're just, they're, they're like little, they look like grapes is what they look like. They're little out pouchings of the, of the cells that line uh, your, your nasal passage. And they, they can, they're not cancer or anything dangerous like that, but they can block your airway and prevent you from breathing through your nose. So you're forced to mouth breathe and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And when those, when those sinuses get completely blocked up or intermittently blocked up, they can fill up with fluid and that fluid can produce pressure and that can cause headaches. Uh, and then there's many other symptoms that are linked to this. They can have cough and, you know, liquid constantly draining in the back of your throat, producing cough and altered uh, phonate, altered voice, you know, that kind of thing. What about snoring? And snoring, yes, can be definitely be a symptom of, of nasal disease and, and sinus disease. And this kind of sinusitis is very commonly linked to asthma. So they very, very commonly co-occur. Up to 50% of, of people that have bad sinusitis have concomitant asthma. Similarly, up to 50% of folks who present with asthma, if you look carefully, up to 50% or more can have uh, ongoing sinusitis. So they're very, very commonly linked. And in, a, in an immunological perspective, they're very, very, again, very, very similar. Same sort of inflammation. It's allergic in nature, meaning uh, you can find this IgE antibody is, is often elevated. Not always, but often. Eosinophils are very common. This, this infection-fighting cell of the blood is very commonly found in that inflamed uh, 
lining uh, of the of the sinuses. Um, and uh, without getting into, into technical details, there's a lot of other similarities similarities on the on the immune side between these diseases. And and again, as we've already published, if you if you culture the liquid, it's that sinus cavity, which you get in the vast majority of patients, at least in Houston. I can't say about Philadelphia. I can't say about I can't say about uh, Israel or, or the Middle East or anywhere else. But in Houston, what we get is is uh, just about everybody is a lot of fungus, not bacteria. Uh, and, uh, so we think that that's a major reason for that inflammation. How many, what percentage of people in the general population have sinusitis? Is this a common issue or is it somewhat uncommon? Depending on the studies, um, it, it's, it's, it can be uh, anywhere from, uh, oh, let's say 5 to 12 to 18% of the populations based on kind of existing studies. Uh, I, I think it's, but that's, these people are presenting with symptoms. Uh, and so what you learn as a clinician is that, uh, it, it, there's, there's not that many squeaky wheels out there with sinusitis. It's been, typically sinusitis, again, has been, has been something that people have been grappling with for so long. They've just learned to adapt to it. And so you can be, it's extraordinary as a, as a clinician to see like a head CT scan, a CAT scan, you know, an x-ray of the head, mm-hmm. see how much disease one person might actually have, but they're not actually complaining about things very, very much at all. If at all, they get a head CT for a completely different reason. Like, like, Maybe maybe another doc was worried that they why they're having uh, some sort of visual change, uh, and and so and, but, but then we just happened to notice that there's a lot of sinusitis going on, but they're not complaining of sinusitis. So it, people are very stoic, is what I'm saying, who have even very bad degrees of sinusitis. So I'm guessing that there's a lot more sinusitis than what the publications suggest. That it may be much much higher. You know, maybe it may be. 20, 30, 40% even in Houston, which is very hot, humid, not, not now, it's 40 degrees out here, but, you know, it's six months out of the year, pretty humid and tropical, and, it, and there's a lot of mold around here. And okay. so maybe things are unique here. I, I, again, I won't speak for Philly. I kind of have my doubts, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll find out over time, I think. Let me ask you another question on um, the culturing of the fungi in sinuses or in in the uh, phlegm or the sputum whatever we we want to what term we want to use sure, um, sure. we had dr irene grant on who, who was a big proponent of a, the same kind of thing she said that a lot of the issues she sees are fungal infections oftentimes in the sinuses oftentimes missed because it's difficult to culture um the fungi that are in that environment is that your experience as well and are you doing something different maybe that that allows you to culture better? Sure. So thank you for letting me jump in on that. So, yeah, sure. you know, we're saying some things here that might, might be coming as, as a revelation to, uh, to some of your, your listeners. We're saying that, you know, that uh, the vast majority of sinusitis, not all, but the vast majority of really bad, you know, life-threatening asthma and sinusitis, that these are really fungal infections at the end of the day. Why don't, why did, so people are naturally asking, why don't, why don't we know this from a much earlier point? Because we've been culturing phlegm, you know, and nasal secretions forever. So the reason, so yeah, it's true, uh, Joe, you, uh, that, that usually those cultures have done under the normal way that is typically done in hospitals. Uh, they usually don't grow anything. There's a reason for that, though. 
It's because everything in that mucus that you're producing in your airway and your sinus, everything is designed to kill or stop the growth of that organism, the fungus. So the eosinophils I keep talking about, they're very, very good at killing fungi. You can take a human or mouse eosinophils, mix them with any fungus, and they'll go to town and start killing them. Macrophages, these are large cells that exist in our airways that are there to scavenge and get rid of things that we inhale, particulates in particular, including spores. They are very, very good at killing fungi if they've already been activated by proteases, for example. Uh, we've some, some, some of these stuff we've, we've published later, perhaps we can talk about a little later if you're interested. Um, and, and then there's many secreted things, uh, uh, proteins that are directly able to stop the growth of fungi or kill them. Things that they have different names, things like defensins is one class of these proteins. So that's why the, the, the unprocessed phlegm or uh, mucus does not grow. So what you have to do, and this is what we figured out, we published this a number of years ago, um, if you loosen that mucus by adding a doing a, adding a chemical treatment, um, loosen up that mucus, and you can now physically remove the mucus from the the the, uh, the fungal elements, the parts of the of the fungi that are in that mucus. Once you get them separated, now if you, if you culture that remaining material, then it grows very readily, and, there, and there's a lot of fungus. <laughs> So it's just a, it's a bit of a, it's, it's not magic. It's just, it's simple. It's simple chemistry really is what it is. Uh, and it's simple. It's just based on a simple understanding of, of how our immune systems work. Our immune systems work by putting things that airway lining fluid, that mucus that kill. Fungus. And if you, if you don't get rid of that, then your cultures are not going to grow. If you get rid of it, uh, then you, your cultures very readily grow. I mean, is that commonly understood now in, in hospital settings and in the medical community, or is this something that no, you know, you, a few not, other people are doing? It's a really good point. It, no, it's not. It, it's not common knowledge. So I, I, you know, I, I talk as as much as I can at, at national and international meetings uh, and, and and say the same thing over and over again. But I still get people, you know, shocked that this, you know, that this might be true. So it does. It's not enough just to get these things published. There, there has to be a groundswell of political action really uh to um to drive some of these things home so for, for example i've tried to get our own hospitals here the the veterans hospital where i work but i'm affiliated with other hospitals to get them to change how they culture respiratory samples because if you're missing fungal growth well you know what you're probably also missing bacterial growth and it's well known that even people that have clearly have bacterial pneumonia only in the minority of instances when you culture, the again, the, the phlegm from people that have pneumonia, do you actually ever recover any bacteria, maybe 30% of the time. It's a very inefficient process, and, it, and it, but now we know why. It's not just bacterial, not, not just a fungal issue. Bacteria have a, have a tough time growing out when, the again, when that mucus has all kinds of things that are stopping it from growing, right? So this method ought to be used widely in any context for trying to find any organism. But that's such a regimented and carefully regulated uh, protocol for how you culture anything in any microbiology laboratory that it takes a political movement uh, within the organizations that control the accrediting of these laboratories to get them to change. And that's where the fight needs to be taken. The, the accrediting organizations need to understand 
that they're, they are accrediting inferior methods. They, they have to move to the next generation method. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how to, I'm not political. I don't know how to do that. How do we do this? Well, I've been, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if you were in a children's hospital, as opposed to working with veterans and, and, you know, people our age, um, maybe you'd get more backing on that, but I don't know. Maybe I'm, I don't know. I don't understand. But, uh, you know, I know there will be some people who work in children's hospitals listening to this show. I'll guarantee you that. And uh, I'm sure they will bring it to the attention of the folks in, in their in their orbit anyway. Um, are there other, are you looking at other methods other than culturing methods? Can, can you use like a DNA-based method for evaluating this? Uh, yes, you can. So, um Applying the, you, you can apply the tech techniques of uh, of metagenomics, uh, microbiome uh, kind of related uh, analyses. So here, what you're doing is you're extracting DNA uh, from the same you know sample that you might otherwise be culturing, uh, and you, you're just extracting all the DNA that you can, uh, and then you can apply without getting into into the gory details. You can apply certain techniques to uh, amplify, if you will, uh, just the fungal-specific components. Or, or, or you could do the same thing for bacteria, and you can leave all the human stuff behind. Uh, and, and then you can, through very sophisticated uh, uh, computer algorithms, uh, you can then sort through the, you know, literally billions of, of, of pieces of DNA that you generate and figure out um, which, uh, what kind of organisms are you looking at. Is it mostly bacterial, mostly fungal? And if it's fungal or bacterial, well, well, what are the species? You know, is it is it Bacillus subtilis? That, you know that we mentioned. Is it Pseudomonas or some other? Or on the, on the fungus side, is it Aspergillus or is it Penicillium or Canada or whatever? So we've done that on a very limited extent, uh, and and uh, uh, and this is unpublished work. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll just I'll just briefly say. Uh, so, for example, in this looking at the same exact sample. Of, of phlegm taken from uh, 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 folks that have asthma coming out of one of our hospitals. So, you know, in a good day, we can isolate on culture, we can isolate you know, up to four different fungi. That would be a, that would be a, that would be a fairly diverse uh, yield. Uh, many folks just have one species that we can identify, but we, we can find up to four. But then if you take that same sample and run it through this, to apply the, the techniques of metagenomics, uh, what you find, you can find up to 60 different species, six zero different species. Um, so it's a, it's a totally different world when you look at this from a metagenomic perspective as opposed to a culture perspective. Wow. So with that, we don't, it's not totally clear how to interpret that vast difference. Uh, maybe it, it might be that, that all of these 60, up to 60 might be pathogenic, maybe not. Uh, we just we don't know at this point. A lot more work has to be done. But it's a it's a it's a fungal zoo at the end of the day, uh, and and the airways of people that have these severe uh, allergic airway diseases like asthma and sinusitis it's a, it's a zoo, uh, and it's but it's it's really it's a fungal zoo. We're not finding a whole lot of other back, things like bacteria there. And this is really a predominantly a story of fungi. Doctor, could you contrast the fluid that's in this nasal passage with biofilm? Is it similar? Is it dissimilar? Is it the opposite? Is you know, and they're they're different. So the the, the fluid that we're getting uh, out of sinuses or what people cough up that that that's a complex mixture of 
mostly stuff that's secreted by your airways and, 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 and your sinus cavities. It consists of, there's obviously a lot of water in there, but there's a lot of mucus. Mucus uh, is a protein, but it has a lot of sugars on it, and it's, it's, it's very, very, very readily absorbs water. So it turns into this gelatinous stuff, <laughs> as we're pretty much all familiar with. Uh, and, but there's, all, there's a lot of cells and, uh, and, and proteins, particularly infection-fighting proteins, that's mixed into that airway lining fluid or mucus. So a biofilm, which you're referring to, that's actually not produced by the host, that is, the, you know, the person. It's produced by the organism. So both fungi and bacteria commonly produce biofilms. These, are, these tend to be matrix-like molecules. They're, they're structural, often proteins and, and sugars that link together and form a, if you, if you will, a barrier around the, the organism, either the fungus or the, or the bacterium. It allows them, it provides a number of functions. One is a, a just simply a surface for which they can attach and stay linked uh, to the cells of the airway. So they, get, they can persist in the airway. But the biofilms also pr provide a shield against attack from both the proteins and, and, and other soluble molecules that have antibacterial and antifungal activity, but also helps protect them from getting ingested. And, you know, the term is phagocytosis, but that just basically means being eaten by the professional uh, uh, particulate eating cells that line our airway, these things, these phagocytes like macrophages. So biofilms are, are really a microbial product, and then the, and then the mucus is, is, is our product. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. Um, and then for the second half, I want to get into your, your treatment protocol a little bit. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit more about the paper that led me to contact you. So, We'll be back in 90 seconds with uh, Dr. David Cord. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers, a feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Okay, we're back. We've got the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. David Corey, and um, sorry, I'm missing some of these text uh, messages. John's going to forward them to me now. We'll try and get those questions uh, to uh, the doctor. Let's talk a little bit about treatment of um, these, these 
fungal infections, I guess, would be the, the, the term for sinusitis and, and for asthma and allergic asthma. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about how you've been treating these issues? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, we're saying, uh, Joe, that this is a, in many, again, not all, but in, in many, likely most patients um, with severe asthma sinusitis, that these are basically fungal infections. And so that immediately suggests that, you know, we should be treating these with, with uh, antibiotics. So there are, there are, are several uh, carefully controlled um, studies um, uh, looking at antifungals and asthma. And two of them, two of those are actually quite positive. One was negative. And, 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 that's, and so it's not totally clear if, if to the clinicians out there, really, uh, uh, should we really be doing this and, and, and getting heavily involved in, in antifungals or not? Rightly so. Um, but we've taken the, the tack that, um, that it's likely that, that this should work. Uh, if, if one study did not work, it's, it could be that the way they set up their, their study may have had some, uh, may, have, may not have been optimal. So what we've been doing over the past four years now, we, we've been taking a, a our, our approach to treating severe asthma and sinusitis has been to heavily emphasize antifungals as primary agents. Uh, we've published our retrospective analysis of our, of our, of our studies on, on patients that have asthma. And it turns out that it's really highly, highly effective. Our, our studies agree with the two other carefully controlled studies, although ours is retrospective. It's not, it wasn't a prospective study. It, it definitely agrees with the two existing prospective studies on the use of antifungals. Very strongly supports that. Uh, and it's, it's not just a matter of it works. It, it's extraordinarily, ex, ex, absolutely extraordinary how effective antifungals actually are. And uh, in, in not in everybody, but in, in many patients, it is just absolutely life-changing. So we're talking about patients who, who are, have had near-death experiences. They cannot work. They're, they're walk, walking around with oxygen tanks because they can't breathe. Their families have often left them uh, because they're just completely debilitated and, and, and they don't know. They don't know. Their lives are completely destroyed. But you put them on antifungals and they stop producing mucus. Their cultures are no longer growing fungus. And they can throw away that oxygen bottle. They can go back to work. If they're guys, they go back uh, who've had girlfriends in the past. They go back to getting those girlfriends and, or, and reconstituting their families and, and that kind of thing. And uh, it's, it's the, the turnaround you can see in folks is absolutely extraordinary. Um, we were, we we're about to publish our work on sinusitis. And I, I, I'm not at liberty to really discuss that in detail because it's not published, but I'll, I, I will say that it's basically the same story. We're getting extraordinary um, results. So not only do patients feel better, look better, and, and inter function vastly better, but, um, but they, um, they're, they're the markers of inflammation that we, that we typically look at in asthma get much better. The eosinophils and the IgE that I've talked about, those all come drastically down and often go back to normal. Um, their cultures turn negative. They're all, all index, index indices of inflammation. They all tend to get better, if not actually normalized. I should point out that not everybody has that kind of experience. So some folks we can't do much with. They, they don't respond to the antifungals. And the reason why I need to point out is not because our diagnosis was wrong. It's that the, the fungi are resistant to the, to the agents that we have. So that's a real problem um, in, in, in out there. So not all fungi are susceptible to the antifungal agents that, that we have access to. 
And so the, the challenge for the future is not trying to find new causes of asthma. <laughs> the, the challenge is finding more effective antifungals. What, what are, when you take these antifungals, is it in a, a pill form? Or is it a spray that you put in the sinuses or is it a combination? So great point. Well, we have, so the, the, it, by the way, treatment is typically six months to a year or longer. So it's a long-term deal. Um, and so we ha- we can't be doing intravenous, you know, drugs. We have to be using pills. Uh, there are uh, aerosol-based formulations, uh, and that may be that may be the secret to overcoming the resistance we've seen. There's many many advantages to giving aerosol drug. Uh, it, uh, you can get a much much more concentrated dose in, into the airway. You avoid systemic side effects. These antifungals are really hard to take. They interfere with a lot of drugs. You can avoid all that by just giving it to the airway. Uh, so tremendous advantages to giving, but it's just not commonly available. And, and currently, I do not have access in, in my hospital to the aerosol version, but I am working with our pharmacy, and we're hoping to, to, to change that in the, in the near future. And, and that may be, that may be the, a big breakthrough for, for the future. Are these more common in other parts of the world, the, the spray form? Uh, actually, yes. So it, it, it aerosol uh, and a fungus, there's one in particular called amphotericin B. That is actually more common in, in, in many countries in Europe. It is, it's not as easy to get in the United States. Um, it is given in one context, that is lung, folks that have had a lung transplant. Actually, a big problem with lung transplants is that they get a lot of fungal infections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, yeah, aerosolized amphotericin is a fantastic way of dealing with that. So, you know, my argument is, you know, it's, it's not a lung transplant, it's asthma and sinus size, but it's the same issue. It's fungus. We need to kill it. And then let's, 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 let's try more of that amphotericin. There's not a whole lot of published literature on amphotericin, but actually what's, what's out there, it looks extremely positive. So, uh, but there's, but so we need more studies, I think, looking at that, that particular agent. What you, you mentioned side effect, one of them being, you know, interference with other types of medications. Are there other side effects that people should, you know, the, the, that can cause concern, I guess? Yeah. So, so the, for the, the antifungals that we typically give, um, the one almost universal problem is, is these things can affect the liver. It can cause problems with the liver. Usually that's rever- that's almost always reversible if you catch it in time. Uh, there are some notorious cases where, uh, folks were put on antifungals and then not monitored, and then, and then they, 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 the, the, the lung, the liver was were very seriously injured, and they, and and uh, and it led to uh, some some mortality. So 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 monitoring of folks while they're taking these drugs is essential. Um, and but and there are other side effects. There can be neurological side effects. Like in, uh, some of these agents, uh, they're called uh, the class is called azole. Uh, antifungals, things like uh, voriconazole, itraconazole, there's others. Uh, these can affect the nerves. Uh, that can be a permanent and irreversible injury. So you have to, again, very close monitoring is needed uh, to avoid uh, that kind of uh, toxicity. And, there, and there's, there's many others. Um, and so, uh, so again, a, 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 these can't be over-the-counter medications. They really ought to be prescribed and carefully monitored by folks with good training and people with knowledge in, in, in the side effects and how to manage uh, the side effects of these medications. And, and what's the cost like? Are they very expensive? Yes. So uh, that's a very good point. Uh, 
so these pills are, even though there many of them are off um, patent, that they are still quite expensive. A huge problem in the United States is that most forms of insurance will not cover uh, mm-hmm. these agents, uh, even though they're uh, based on, you know, quality research, hopefully coming out of our laboratory and others. Uh, insurance is not yet to a point where they're willing to routinely cover the cost. So often it's an out-of-pocket issue. So we're talking it's, you know, in some cases, uh, up to tens of thousands of dollars per year. Um, and, and, you, and you might need to take these for up to a year or more. And some, by the way, some folks uh, need to take them lifelong. So once you've got them under control, you can't really take them off of it. They need to be on a limit, on a more limit. This can't be a full dose, but it has to be maybe a half dose, but lifelong. And, and so that's an ongoing expense that's not just for a year, for forever. And again, it's out of pocket for most people's insurance. So this is a huge problem. And um, that's another, you know, political battle that needs to be fought. Well, we're, you know, we'll hopefully as time, you know, as you see results, because even though there are costs for the medication, then you're also saving costs in other ways, right? You're, you're not having right. asthma attacks and going to the hospital and so forth. That is presumptive. Uh, a careful cost-effectiveness uh, analysis has not been done for antifungals uh, and asthma, but that's what needs to get done. And once, and I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not qualified to do that, nor am I, do I have the bandwidth, uh, given all of our other research. But somebody needs to do that, and, and if that were to come out and be positive, that, that's the kind of publication that we need to convince the, you know, the, in part, the, the insurance industry that they need to be sponsoring these medications. But yes, by keeping people out of the hospital, keeping them from going into the intensive care unit at a cost of $10,000 per day or more um, for, because of their of a bad attack of asthma, that kind of thing, yeah, the, the full expectation is these things should save a lot of money. Oh. We, we hear a lot of, um, there are many health issues that the fungi are, are blamed for. Mold exposure can cause uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, chronic inflammation and um, other things that aren't necessarily related to respiratory system and, and so forth. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on those possibilities. I realize it's not your area that, that you're studying, but do you think it's possible that, you know, if you've got a chronic fungal infection in your sinuses, it could lead to something similar to a chronic fatigue syndrome? Yeah, it's a really great point, uh, Joe. You know, it, it was a tremendous uh, eye-opening experience for, for, my, for me and my colleagues that to, to, to realize that fungi can persist uh, in, in our bodies, you know, for years or even decades and produce these chronic smoldering processes, sinusitis and asthma. So I think it's, it's only natural to wonder, uh, you know, again, as a clinician, you know, that we have to deal, all clinicians have to deal with these chronic, uh, hard to treat disorders that people, they're very, very common that we really don't re- understand at all. As you mentioned, chronic fatigue syndrome, but other there's forms of arthritis. Uh, I mean, all forms of arthritis, quite honestly, are mysteries. Rheumatoid arthritis, for example, is an autoimmune disease. It's is it our bodies? It's our bodies attack, attacking ourselves, that kind of thing. But still, we don't really under we don't know what the underlying issue is with those sorts. Then there's osteoarthritis, extremely common, uh, and yet we really don't have any insight what the fundamental underlying cause of that disorder is. Well, then, then there's all these other things. Well, what about hypertension? What about uh, 
the most common causes of death in the United States are related to vascular inflammation, inflammation of the blood vessels, leading to what's called you know atherosclerosis or you know cholesterol buildup and that kind of thing. Yes, cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. These things all contribute to heart disease and you know including heart attacks and strokes and that kind of thing. But again, we don't know. None of us know what the fundamental underlying cause is of these disorders. There is literature, believe it or not, <laughs> not much. There's literature. People have taken out the you know the plaques that build up and block your arteries and cause strokes and heart attacks. People have dug that out of, of humans and and studied it and found pieces of fungi. You know, in in that. That doesn't mean that fungi are causing these disorders or are or are the fundamental underlying reason for, for, for these disorders. But it's an intriguing association. And basically what it says is that more a lot more work ought to be done looking at it, 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 some of these novel, potential potentially infectious explanations for, for these disorders. You know, I always think of my own experience over my lifetime. I had chronic bronchitis pneumonia, and I, I, I've been on antibiotics since I was probably four years old. And, and, and I know many people are on antibiotics very commonly, and I, I, it just makes me wonder, do, are we killing the bacteria that could be, you know, uh, fending off some of these fungal infections, and, and people go to the MDs and they, they want something, you got to give me something for this, whatever I have here, doc, and they get antibiotics, and and are they causing damage that they don't know about? It just makes you wonder. That's a really good point, Joe. You know, and let, let me—I'm not getting off track here. Let me just slip in a little bit, a little bit more background before I address your this very important issue. But that you know, uh, what we're learning is that in people that have a lot of really bad, life-threatening asthma and sinusitis. Um, again, we've not published this, and it, so I, I can't be speaking definitively. But our very strong intuition at this point and we do have some data to support this, is that um, these folks have, um, they have a form of immune deficiency. They have, they have, they have a, a problem with their, with their immune system that makes them more susceptible to fungal uh, infections that persist. And that's why not everybody has asthma and sinus, even though we're all, we're all exposed to mold. We're always breathing it in, spores with every breath, but only some of us actually get into trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... so um, so, uh, but so that might that kind of immunodeficiency might affect up to if you do the math, might affect up to one uh, percent of the population. That would be extraordinarily high for an, for a genetically based immune problem. I mean, there's no other genetic known genetically based sort that comes even anywhere close to that kind of number. So that's got us thinking that um, that um, what it may not be our genes that normally protect us from fungi that actually is something else. And that might be the biofilm that we've already talked about, but a bacterial biofilm, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea is that from birth, you know, we begin inhaling bacteria and they set up shop in our airways uh, and they form biofilms and they persist. They don't, but they don't necessarily cause a lot of problems, but what they might do is because they're already there and they, they, it's a competition with fungi for these niches that they're able, they, they're able to expel or prevent fungi from really taking root. Uh, but if we go in there now with antibiotics uh, and start wiping out those biofilms, 
then now we, we're leaving us wide open for that those fungi to get in there, set up shop, form their own biofilms, and now they'll exclude the bacteria, and now they can persist for long periods of time. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, so it's not just a problem with antibiotics uh, being given for viral colds, which is totally inappropriate, but it's still done very, very widely, particularly in children. You know, what about all those hand uh, sanitizers that are, you know, every five feet in any hospital today has? Those are good. We need to be, docs in particular, are really bad about washing their hands in between contact with patients uh, and spreading, you know, horrible bacteria from patients. But it's a really bad problem. But now, so it's appropriate to have these in hospitals, but, but now you find them in like CVS pharmacies and you find them in malls. <laughs> people have them in there. So people were going nuts with the hand sanitizers. That's probably not doing a whole lot of good outside of a hospital. In fact, what we're probably doing is wrecking our biofilms uh, and even further. And, 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 and again, we're, we're, we're setting up a situation in which fungi can more readily get into us, take hold and persist when in a, completely natural context they're not going to have that opportunity because the bacteria are going to get there first you know we're we're running a little low on time and i i'd I'd be feel bad if we didn't at least talk briefly about the paper that you know that i saw that that got me in contact with you and this is one you're looking at canada and and how it may cross the blood brain uh barrier and and then that makes me think about okay what about um some of the brain related disease we see, Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera. And I, I know you're not saying that's the cause of these diseases, but um, I wish you uh, could you tell listeners a little bit about that study and then hopefully I can get you back sometime to expand Absolutely. on that. Sure. You- I mean, just, just, just real quick, uh, you know, there, there is a connection between, there's a couple of, you know, odd pieces of information that, that kind of conspired to get us into looking at brain disease. First, uh, asthma has been epidemiologically linked to later onset dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. It's just an epidemiological association. It's really, there's really no understanding of what that's all about. It's just kind of crazy. All right. And then uh, there's, a, there's a very interesting paper that came out by a, a group of pathologists in Spain. They published their work in uh, scientific reports a few years ago. They looked at 10 different brains of Alzheimer's, from Alzheimer's uh, patients who died of Alzheimer's, and they found fungus, both yeast and molds, in all 10 of those brains. Uh, and then in 10 out of 10 healthy controls, there was no fungus. And so that, that was an extraordinary paper. And then another issue is, is that as a, as a lung doc, uh, earlier in my career, what I did was I worked in the, I ran the medical intensive care unit at, at several of the hospitals uh, around here in Houston, linked to Baylor. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the big issues with bloodstream infections, is it used to be it was all bacterial, but now the big one is fungal. And it turns out that if you get, if you're in an intensive care unit and you get a, particularly a fungal, but any, actually any uh, bloodstream infection, um, if you survive that and leave, are able to leave the hospital, then uh, even out to a year past that, that, that event, um, most folks end up with some form of dementia. It might be very mild, but it's, it's, it's definitely measurable. Hmm. So that got us wondering, what is the link between these, these, these bloodstream infections, particularly fungal, which I have, we have a lot of experience with, uh, and uh, brain? So that that's led us to develop a model of bloodstream infection with Canada, one of the fungi we've shown that does induce asthma-like disease of mice. If you inject that into bloodstream, it, it actually does go to the brain. Uh, that, that was a surprise all by itself. I mean, the brain is supposed to be very heavily protected, but these fungi can get right into the brain. 
they wow. produce a pattern of inflammation that is strikingly similar uh, to what we see in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, that was an, uh, that was rather unexpected. And again, we're not saying that, that, that we've found a cause for Alzheimer's disease, but what we're saying is uh, is that uh, a lot more work should be done in this area and trying to understand, given the dis- dis- disparate literature that there is now on fungi and Alzheimer's, that, that we, we need to do a lot more work to understand exactly what that connection is all about. And it's, it's not just Canada necessarily. This could uh, Are there other studies that use filamentous fungi as opposed to a yeast? Uh, so going back to that, that the, the the Spanish group uh, that published their work in scientific reports, they they found both uh, filamentous aspergillus in particular uh, and yeast, uh, including Canada, in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. So that study alone suggests that yes, there's a role for both uh, yeasts and molds uh, when it comes to brain infection. And clearly, uh, it's it's it's, been, it's long been known that. Um, mold infections that begin in the lung and very highly immunocompromised patients that can definitely spread to other parts of the body, including the brain. That's a very, very highly fatal uh, condition. Wow. Hey, before we go, Cliff, um, I know we've we've got to wrap up because I don't want to hold the doc too long. And and, um, any final thoughts, Cliff, or questions? No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to get into the carbon thing, but we don't have time and we got to bring them back to do that. Oh yeah, No doubt. <laughs> we'll figure out a way to get you back. Uh, doctor, any, any final thoughts from you before we go? Anything we missed, anything you'd like to add? No, just uh, thank you for the opportunity, uh, Joe and Cliff. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, I'd love to hear some feedback and, and if we can take this forward, yeah, and, and if, if that stimulates a, you know, a political movement along the lines we've already discussed, that'd be, that'd be a wonderful result. Well, we'll certainly be letting our, our listeners know and uh, those in the industry that, that we talk to on a regular basis. Thanks again Wonderful. to Dr. Thank you guys. Uh, great, great stuff. Very, very interesting. And I appreciate your uh, kind, um, you know, allowing us your time and uh, spending as much time as you have with me on the phone as well. Likewise. Right. Thank you, guys. Talk to you soon. Take care. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you so much to this week's guest. I think that show might be one of our better ones there, Cliff. Uh, Amen. You should be getting quite a few downloads on that one. I'm going to spread the word a little next week. We'll add it to the list of fantastic discussions with MDs on on this topic. I also want to thank at the controls, John, you got to have faith. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and, of course, our growing group of loyal listeners, We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.